This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Wage garnishment. It's it's a pretty scary term when, when you have the idea that somebody could actually start taking your wages without you knowing, or even if you knew but had no control to stop it. Blair, a big question for me when I started thinking about this and reading about it, how fast can a creditor take my income and that's got to be unbelievably stressful for somebody in that situation yeah i would generally say that the clients that are subject to a wage garnishment you know they're the most urgent of the urgent situations that we see so you know even everyone that answers our phone at sands and associates if they know there's a wage garnishment we're trying to book somebody you know same day let's see if someone's in between meetings can they talk to the person right away because that can be just you know quite life-altering if suddenly you're not you're expecting your full paycheck and you get 70 percent of your full paycheck or maybe less than that depending on the situation so absolutely wage garnishment is something that can really literally smack somebody in the face with their debt situation. It can really reiterate to them, oh, this is so serious that someone's either taking court action against you or the government has decided they're out of patience and they've decided to really start intercepting your money before it comes to you. So obviously it's very severe. In terms of how quickly it can start, well, making a single payment late isn't usually a severe consequence. But if you have a pattern of that, or if you have a bunch of debt that remains unpaid, your creditors are likely to start taking escalating steps to get you to resume payments and get them repaid. Every creditor has their own policies and their own practices, but you can anticipate some of these actions to start happening and then eventually escalating. So if you start missing payments, oftentimes there'll be late fees charged to you and perhaps some NSF fees if your payments bounced. Um, creditors will often raise your interest rate. If you're delinquent, they'll take away any preferred interest rate and charge you a much higher rate. Uh, Of course, they'll put notations on your credit report. So they'll make it more difficult for you to incur other debt, give a heads up to creditors that this person is having trouble meeting their obligations. Uh, They might start to lock down the account and you'll find, well, you can't incur any new debt until you get this balance paid off. Typically, it's after three months where you've started to miss significant payments on an account. That's when they start to turn your account over to a collection agency. And sometimes it's an in-house collections department, but quite often it's a third party where essentially the person you borrowed money from or the institution has decided at that point they've given up on the customer relationship. They want to get the heavy hitters involved, which is a third party collection agency. Um, And that's when people can really start to feel harassed and highly stressed when collection agents start to contact them. And there's some rules around what a debt collector can do, but a couple of things are surprising. You know, there's no maximum number uh, to the number of times they can call you in a day. So I have some pe- people tell me or they're calling me 20 or 30 times a day. And my response is, well, as long as it's within the hours of 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, through the week and 1 to 5 p.m. on Sundays, they're really not doing anything wrong. They're allowed to persistently call. 
Um, they can call your relatives, your employer, even your friends if they have that contact information. Uh, and if your debt's been co-signed, they have the right to communicate with a co-signer and seek payment. Now, when they call your, you know, your employer, your friends, they can't start to discuss your debt, but they can say, hey, we're trying to reach this person. We're having trouble. Do you have their contact information? And generally, people will read between the lines. Well, hey, this, why am I getting called about somebody else's debt? And it'd be a little bit embarrassing. Now, eventually, what can happen is if none of these strategies are bearing fruit, if the collectors aren't able to get their money back, if, you know, charging the extra fees and interest rates aren't, aren't, aren't bearing fruit, what creditors can do is they can take you to court. And this can happen once they've received a court judgment, they can get permission to take an asset such as a vehicle or even register a charge against your home as a way to secure their payment against the debt. And then finally, and most often, if somebody doesn't have an asset like a home they can register against, they can be permitted to garnish your income, which means a portion of your wages and other incomes get paid directly to your creditor until your debt is repaid. And they can even add their legal fees, their costs, extra interest charges on top of it. Um, provided they follow the right processes, wage garnishment can be undertaken by creditors like banks, credit card companies, collection agencies, private lenders, even an individual that you owe money to, and also the Canada Revenue Agency uh, is able to garnish for things like tax debt, student loans, and EI overpayments. Wow, it just sounds horrific. But I know that folks go through this, and, and if you're going through this right now, and this is all you need to know, this is the phone number for Sands & Associates. Talk to a licensed insolvency trustee and figure this out. There are lots of good remedies, and, and Blair, we're going to talk about those. The phone number, first, 1-800-661-3030. So a uh, question I've got, how long does it take for a garnishment to start for someone? Well, most creditors need to get two court orders for a wage garnishment, and that usually takes some time, generally a few weeks to a couple of months, because you have to be served by, for, by documents when you're being taken to court. So the first court order they have to get is what's called a judgment against you that confirms that you owe the creditor the debt. So if you don't believe it's a valid debt, when they're trying to get that judgment against you, you would show up in court and demand proof, well, show me this is a valid debt. You know, in most cases, people have a debt, they know it's valid, they're just not able Able to pay it so the creditor will be successful in getting that judgment once the creditor has this judgment against you they can then seek what's called a garnishing order and once they get the garnishing order, that's when they contact your employer's payroll department. They send them the garnishing order and they direct the employer's payroll department to withhold funds from your paycheck and remit the money to the court. And after the money is placed in court, that's when the garnishing creditor can apply uh, to, to get those funds being, being held there. So it's a number of steps. It does take some time, but you have to be careful. You're not caught unaware, uh, caught unaware because sometimes people get to the the point where they just stop opening their mail. They say they know it's all bad news and what does it really matter whether I open it or not? Well, it can really matter because if there's some upcoming court actions, the creditor can ask the court to even issue a warrant for your arrest if you're requested to appear and you don't do so. So you're never arrested for owing money in Canada. That's just not a thing. Um, but you could be arrested if there's a court action about the debt, you're asked to appear and you just ignore it. A warrant can be sent for your, your arrest. So you want to be careful about that. Uh, one important exception where I mentioned all of these steps, the two court hearings, the notice that you'll get, an exception to that is if you owe money to Canada Revenue Agency. 
So Canada Revenue Agency, being the government, they can shortcut many of the steps that I've just outlined. They don't have to get a judgment. They don't have to get a garnishing order. Uh, what they can do is they can skip those steps and they can just issue what's called a requirement to pay. And that's a notice that goes directly to your employer or even to a client if you're self-employed. And it would direct the, the employer or the client uh, to withhold whatever the certain percentage of funds would be and remit them directly to Canada Revenue Agency before they send money to you. So for a lot of people, they don't realize a garnishment is happening until they suddenly get short paid on their paycheck and they contact their HR department and then suddenly they're aware uh, of this court order or the CRA order that's been received. In terms of how much money can be taken, well, in the province of BC, it's up to 30% of your net income that can be garnished from each paycheck. Um, but it's important to know those limits do not apply to Canada Revenue Agency. Canada Revenue Agency can take up to 100% uh, of your paycheck if they want to, 100% of your self-employed income from a client, and even other income, which is completely safe from a bank garnishee, for example, things like CPP, OAS, and EI benefits, they can't be seized by a private creditor, but CRA can seize all of those things. So it's, in general, it's 30%, but it could be up to 100%, and there's a few streams of income that may be exempt, but not when you're dealing with the government. Okay. So can we spend the, I'm feeling quite depressed about this. No. Can we spend the last <laughs> few minutes yeah. <laughs> of this segment? Boy, oh boy, it just sounds like a nightmare for, for folks. Um, what are the options? What, what do I have? What can I do uh, to dispute or stop this kind of a garnishment? Well, you, you can do a lot. So I am happy we're pivoting here because you're right. It is probably the worst situation you can imagine being. And as you worked for this hard-earned money, you're struggling to make ends meet and suddenly you're not getting your paycheck. Well, what can you do? So a couple things. You can decide to apply to court to have the garnishing order set aside. If you can prove to the court the order is causing you serious financial hardship or it isn't necessary to get payment of the debt, the court might agree. They might also agree to exempt a higher proportion of your wages. So you might say, well, I can't afford to have 30% taken from my paycheck, let's agree at 10%. And you can show the court a budget on why that's reasonable. Um, or you can work out informally a payment schedule with the creditor to say, okay, we can stop with all these court proceedings. You know, I'm going to make a plan and stick to it to repay the debt. Now, that can work if you have the ability to repay this debt and can even afford even part of a garnishment. For the vast majority of people that we see, they just need immediate relief. They need this garnishment to stop. They need to start getting their paychecks and whatever they can repay is going to be a whole lot less than 30% or even 10% of their income because they just can't afford more than that. So what you can do to stop a garnishment is you can work with a licensed insolvency trustee to file either a consumer proposal or to declare bankruptcy. Both of those options, as soon as you file a proposal, for example, the trustee will send notice to the courts, notice to the employer. They can stop sending your wages to the creditor. They can start giving you your paycheck. Literally the day you sign on the documents, um, there's what's called the stay of proceedings, which means any proceedings against you have to stop. A garnishment is a proceeding against you, and that comes to a grinding halt. As soon as you file either a bankruptcy or a proposal, the next paycheck you receive after then, you should get at 100 percent of what you're owed. Wow, so it can happen that quickly. 
It certainly can. And as I mentioned early, you know, these are the top of the urgent of the urgent, the clients that we deal with. So quite often people will take a couple of weeks to have meetings, get all their documents together. Uh, we've turned around situations in 24 hours where someone said, I'm getting paid in a couple of days. I've got all my information ready. I need to get this started. So we react as quickly as we can. Uh, it's usually within a week or two, but it can be as short as a couple of days if someone needs that immediate relief. And I like this part of the segment where, where, we, where we're going to talk about why it's such a good idea not to get to that place. I mean, if you are, there's help there. Sands and Associates is going to help you. But if you're in a, a bind, if you, if you can feel that your debt is unmanageable and you don't know what to do, the first thing you can do is get a hold of uh, Sands and Associates and say, this is my situation. So that all this other stuff that we've just talked about isn't even in, on the horizon for you. It, it's about starting to manage that debt and, and it's just such a, such a great uh, set of solutions. Can we talk a little bit about that, especially the warning signs that may not mm -hmm. be obvious for folks? Yeah, you know, from our experience, debt problems don't resolve themselves. So just ignoring them does not make things get better. They just get worse. And the most common warning signs are things, you know, that you, you wouldn't always think of as traditional financial warning signs, but are you constantly thinking about your debt? Are you feeling debt stressed, worried or anxious about your finances? Um, are you stuck in a cycle where you're only making your minimum payments and or are you relying on your credit cards to meet your cost of living? If any of those things talk to you, your current reality, you're not alone, especially in today's environment. It's very difficult to make headway with high costs, high interest rates, everything like that. So reach out for help before it gets to the time when your wages are being garnished. You don't need to wait for such a severe situation to get help. This segment is all about personal bankruptcy, and I know that those words can strike fear in your heart when you hear them. I know they do for me. It just sounds so awful, but the message here is, one, it's not as bad as you think. Historically, frightening to hear those words, uh, you know, shame, embarrassment, all that stuff. But Blair, his purpose in being here for this segment is he's going to walk us through the process, and by the end of it... Ah, maybe you'll think it's not as bad as you thought it might be. And we know that um, personal bankruptcy can be the best solution for folks that are trying to deal with their debt the most effective, efficient way and uh, be able to move forward as a result. And so, Blair, can you start by explaining what does it mean to file for personal bankruptcy in British Columbia in 2023? Well, well, certainly, Elaine, and it's definitely the case bankruptcy is always your last resort. So it's never the first thing that comes out of the toolkit when you think, oh, I think I might have a debt problem. You don't file bankruptcy the next day. But that being said, when other options aren't suitable, when you've been struggling for a period of time, uh, it's really good to know, well, what is this option of bankruptcy? It exists in Canadian law for a reason. And quite often, the specter of it, the idea about it is far worse than the actual reality. Uh, and bankruptcy just allows you to get that fresh start. So what bankruptcy does, it's a powerful legal debt forgiveness process that Canadians can access in situations where their debts have become unmanageable. When you file for personal bankruptcy, you get legal protection from your creditors and you get debt forgiveness that eliminates virtually all of your debts. So the point of a personal bankruptcy, and this is from the legislation, the wording, is to provide the honest but unfortunate person an opportunity to start fresh free from unmanageable debt. 
Uh, bankruptcy is a federally legislated process. So there's small differences province to province, but for the most part, it's consistent across Canada. And for most people, bankruptcy is simple, private. It's not something that goes in the newspaper typically, and only the people that know about it are those that need to know about it. Um, and it's quite often it's finished in as little as nine months. Um, the eligibility uh, to, to file for bankruptcy in Canada is you have to owe more than $1,000 uh, and be insolvent, meaning that you're unable to repay your debts. And you know nobody I've ever seen files bankruptcy for $1,000 a debt, but some people file bankruptcy for five to $10,000 per debt, uh, where some people file it for millions of dollars of debt. So there's no upper limit, um, but you do have to owe at least $1,000. Um, there's no need for you to have overdue accounts or to be facing creditor harassment or a low credit score. Uh, for a lot of people, it's up to 70% of people that end up filing a bankruptcy. They actually have a strong credit score, but as they've learned and I've learned in this job too, you can have exceptional credit and still have $80,000 of credit card debt that you may never be able to pay off, but you keep the exceptional credit just by making all your minimum payments every month. So it's not the case you have to be subject to a garnishment or collection activities, you can just have made that realization that I'm just never going to get out from under this debt burden of doing what I'm doing here. Um, there are significant advantages to bankruptcy. So the reason why you'd go through a process like this is, well, first off, you get full forgiveness for just about every type of debt. Uh, you get to protect your assets and your income from creditors, including halting any wage seizures or court actions that are against you. Uh, you get to remove unaffordable debt payments from your monthly budget. So in general, the cost of doing a bankruptcy is very significantly less than what you'd be charged to pay your debts off in full. Um, and the whole idea of removing the debt stress. So the stress that you're under, having these burdens that you can't meet, getting you a financial fresh start that allows you to move forward with your life and achieve your future financial goals. Uh, quite often, and there are many ways to get out of debt, but quite often bankruptcy ends up being the quickest and the least expensive option uh, of the formal debt resolutions to consider. So not to say that's everyone's best option is bankruptcy. It isn't, but if bankruptcy is right for you, it's typically not as expensive or long in duration as you might have thought. I want to mention too, you know, if you already know that this is your next step or you're almost 100% sure it is, then this is the phone number to talk to someone at Sands and Associates. And they have offices all over British Columbia. It's 1-800-661-3030. I also want to suggest if you're not quite sure, maybe going to their website would be helpful. Uh, it's sands-trustee.com. It's just filled with such great questions and, and, uh, and answers that are easy to understand, not no big, you know, big language barriers for you at all. It's just really thoughtful, kind answers that may then spur you on to making that first appointment. And you can do that on the website as well. Um, so Blair, what steps need to happen to file for bankruptcy at this point? Well, just about every personal bankruptcy I've ever seen is considered voluntary, meaning the person seeks out the services of a licensed insolvency trustee. Uh, it's possible to be forced into bankruptcy, but I've literally never seen it in more than 15 years of being a trustee. So in the vast majority of cases, it's just the person decides this is the remedy that they want to pursue. Uh, you have to work with a licensed insolvency trustee to file for bankruptcy. You don't need a lawyer. You generally don't need to appear in court, uh, but you do have to engage a trustee. 
Uh, and there are generally three steps, especially when you're dealing with SANS and associates. So the first step is to have a confidential debt consultation. You'll speak with a qualified, non-judgmental debt expert like a trustee or an estate manager. We'll go through all the issues you're hoping to resolve, uh, outline your debts, what are your household and your income situations, what are your objectives and what's relevant to your circumstances. You really need to make sure you're getting advice from a licensed insolvency trustee or estate manager because they're the only people that are empowered to actually administer a bankruptcy. So even if you're discussing with you know a lawyer or an accountant, you might be getting partial guidance at best. So the best lawyers and accountants refer their clients directly to a trustee to make sure that the person is getting the best insight, the most up-to-date insights about how a bankruptcy process would work. So after step one, after that confidential debt consultation, uh, step two is where you'd assemble some documentation and bring it back to the trustee. So there's a short information form that you would fill out um, outlining all the circumstances you've discussed in the first meeting about your debts, your income, uh, your tax situation, all of your assets. Uh, and then you'd provide the trustee with some supporting documentation. So for each of the people you owe money to, hey, let's get the most recent bill. Uh, for your job, if you're working, well, let's get your most recent pay stuff. Let's understand the entire situation. Once you provide that information to the trustee, trustee starts to prepare the official documents for filing and that's the focus of your third meeting. So your third meeting is when you're able to start the bankruptcy process. You haven't paid anything to that point. There's been no obligation, everything confidential to there. And then once you sign the bankruptcy process, you stop having any responsibility to pay these debts directly. The trustee steps in the middle between you and your creditors and you deal with the trustee to successfully complete the personal bankruptcy process. Okay. All right. So let's talk about how that works, how that process works. Um, I know that you've said it's, it's very straightforward for folks. Um, and, and that, you know, might be hard for someone to actually believe because it sounds like such a big, uh, overwhelming, complicated thing. But, but actually when you get right down to it, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, you know, the, the first thing that people think is, well, bankruptcy takes six, seven, 10 years. Well, no, it takes nine months for the vast majority of people, upwards of 80% of people when they file for bankruptcy from the day they're signing those documents to the day we're signing a certificate of discharge, which says they have no more debt and they're moving forward, everything left behind. Uh, that period of time is just nine months. Uh, what happens during those nine months is as soon as you sign the documents, you've got the protection of the bankruptcy and your trustee starts to handle all of the creditor contact. So the trustee sends the creditors a copy of the bankruptcy filing and gets a claim back from each of the creditors that proves the amount of debt that, that's being suspended and then eventually eliminated. Uh, you keep in touch with your trustee and you have to do a couple of duties and there's just a couple things you have to do on a monthly basis um, to really make sure the bankruptcy will finish on time and give you the right financial rehabilitation. The most important thing is you have to complete a basic monthly budget form that details your household income and your expenses. So the trustee's not here to judge on how you're spending your money, but the trustee will give you some insights if they notice something, but will also have to validate are your is your income above or below low income guidelines because that's what's determines what determines how long you're in a bankruptcy proceeding. So if somebody that's low income, they're out of bankruptcy as soon as nine months. Somebody that's not low income, they're in bankruptcy for a longer period of time because they have a higher ability to repay part of the debt. 
So you do the budget forms every month. Um, you have to make a regular payment to the trustee for the cost of the bankruptcy. Um, usually it's significantly less than what you're already paying on your debts. And if it's a nine month bankruptcy, those payments stop at the end of nine months. Uh, really important aspect too, aside from the budgets and doing the the uh, payments is you have to attend two financial counseling sessions. So they're private one-on-one -on -one sessions, about 45 minutes in length, and they're focused on helping you develop a household budget for the future, helping you set financial goals you can achieve after the bankruptcy is finished. And you have to attend both of those in order to complete the bankruptcy on time. Okay. What, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions that people have? I mean, we've touched on a couple, um, mm -hmm. but what are the biggest ones that you encounter all the time that misconceptions about a personal bankruptcy and, and how it would affect someone? Yeah, a couple of things. So one, a lot of people think, well, bankruptcy would be great, but it won't help me because I owe this type of debt. And, you know, sometimes people assume, well, if it's a secured debt, you know, if it's a vehicle shortfall or a mortgage shortfall, well, that can't be part of a bankruptcy. Well, no, it can. If you have to default on a mortgage and the house is sold and they say you owe a bunch of extra money, that absolutely is a mortgage debt that can be included. Uh, debts owing to another person just because the person said, well, I would never accept a bankruptcy filing. It really doesn't matter. They don't have any option. Um, every debt that you owe that's a standard consumer debt can be included in a personal bankruptcy filing. A lot of people think debts to CRA can't be included in a bankruptcy. Nope, they absolutely can. Uh, there's nothing in CRA's legislation that allows them to opt out of your right to get a financial fresh start. Um, student loans, even ICBC debts. So don't make the assumption that bankruptcy can't help because you think you have a very unique type of debt. There are a couple of debts that can't be included things like child support, alimony, fa family maintenance. But you know, that's about it. There's not too many other types of debt that really can't be included in a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Um, a second big misconception is that bankruptcy causes you to lose all of your assets. And it doesn't. In most cases, people keep all of their assets because there are provincial exemptions that allow people to keep their clothing and medical aids, their household items, their work tools, even a vehicle and a certain amount of home equity, RRSPs and pension plans, all of those things you're typically in a better position to retain after a bankruptcy than before because you've got protection now from all of your creditors while you restructure. Okay, and this question is for somebody who's sitting there listening to all this and going, okay, I'm really struggling with my debt. I, I don't know about bankruptcy. What's the number one thing that they should do right now? Well, think? they should just reach out for help. So you don't want to self-diagnose. You can make yourself crazy reading everything on the internet about every topic. There are certain trusted sources you can come to, and a licensed insolvency trustee is your best resource, your best ally. We'll meet with you at no cost, no obligation, and with no judgment to review all of the options, and if bankruptcy is right for you, we'll help you go forward. This segment is all about the payday loan loop. We're going to talk about some key risks to using payday and fast cash loans and what to do if you get caught up in that cycle. Uh, Blair has said time and time again that payday and other fast cash style loans are among the riskiest types of debt that experts talk about. And so in this segment, we're going to talk about what makes this type of borrowing so problematic 
and what you can do if you found yourself in that loop. So, and Blair, just doing a little bit of reading about payday loans and specifically in this province, um, BC seems to have some pretty clear rules. Do you know offhand, and I know this is kind of off topic for a second, is BC different than other provinces? Are we more lax or more strict when it comes to these things? Do you have a sense of that? I know the majority of provinces do have their own sets of rules, any of the, the large provinces for sure. Um, I haven't compared against, you know, somewhere like Ontario or Alberta. I think it's in general pretty similar. There's some guidelines around these types of financing, uh, but it still doesn't mean that it's not dangerous, as we're going to talk about today. There's a lot of ways people can get into trouble with payday loans, even though there are some regulations around there. Absolutely. And of course, the cost of things is crazy and it sort of forces people to possibly make some poor choices. And, and specifically, we're going to talk about the payday loan loop. And, and, and uh, I know, uh, Blair, that we'll start off this segment talking about what it is and how it works in this province. Yeah, for, for sure. And payday loans, it's a topic kind of near and dear to my heart because I see it as one of the most dangerous forms of consumer finance. Uh, I remember a, a few years back, I was called by the Globe and Mail to comment on payday loans. And I remember saying, well, these are the crack cocaine of consumer debt. It's so dangerous. They're so addictive. And there's no way they're ever going to run that quote. And that's actually exactly what they ran in, in the article. Um, so I make no, no bones about it. I think this is a very dangerous style of financing. Uh, what a payday loan is, it's a short-term high-cost loan where the province of BC you can borrow up to $1,500 and you get up to 62 days to pay back the loan. Um, the loan can't be for more than 50% of your paycheck. Uh, you can get the loans either in store or increasingly online. And the idea of a payday loan is, you know, different than a credit card or a long-term bank loan. It's meant to cover a cash shortfall for just a short period of time with the idea you're going to pay the loan back on your next paycheck. Um, the fees and the costs can vary a little bit uh, from depending on the province that you're you're living in. In BC, Consumer Protection BC oversees payday loans. Um, and in terms of how many people actually use payday loans, it's a bit of a dated study, but it's back to 2016. I've certainly seen it grow since then. But in 2016, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada said that more than 4% of Canadian households had used payday loans, and that had more than doubled in recent years. And I know from our research, we've seen payday loans as the fastest fastest growing uh, type of debt that our, our clients are presenting with. What's different about payday loans is they're meant to be re repaid in just a few short weeks. Um, you're often able to get the loans without any credit check. Um, it's usually a flat fee interest charge that's applied when you pay it on time. And in general, the repayment dates are organized right around your paydays. Uh, what the study also found, <coughs> the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada study, it said that less than half or 43% of payday loan users polled actually understood that a payday loan was more expensive than the alternatives. And you might ask, well, well, how expensive? And you know, you often hear, well, credit cards might be 20 or 30% interest. Well, the way a payday loan works, it can be a little bit tough to understand right off the top what the interest rate is, but we've done some of the math for you here. The way it works is a payday lender could charge you $15 for every $100 that you borrow. So if you take out a $500 payday loan, you can be charged up to $75 in interest and fees. But when you do the math, that was a bi-weekly payday loan. So you had the money out just for two weeks to get you through to your next paycheck. That's actually an interest rate of 400%. 
Like that's staggering. Uh, the Criminal Code of Canada says the maximum interest rate you can charge is 60%, but there's special exemptions for payday loans to allow, allow them to charge that much, that kind of fees. So the really important thing is if you're going to take out a payday loan to make sure you can pay it off on time, because if you don't pay it off on time, that 400%, which is already high, it just goes up because they're going to charge you fees if you don't have money to pay that, that account when it's due. Your bank might double you up on an NSF fee as well. It could easily be over $100, the combination of those fees. Um, the lender can continue to charge you interest and they may bring in a collection agency. Um, and I can tell you from experience that the most aggressive collectors that we've ever dealt with at Sands and Associates are from online payday lenders uh, where they harass, cajole, intimidate every... Uh, you know, type of, of dirty trick you can imagine are what online payday lenders will do to try to extract payment from an individual. So a lot of risks, a lot of high costs, and certainly something that consumers should be aware of and, and think twice, hopefully, before they take one out, unless they're very certain they can repay it when it's due. It's almost, uh, it, it does sound almost criminal, doesn't it, that those kinds of fees and, and interest rate charges can be charged to a consumer who's obviously in trouble or needing some uh, support or help to get something paid for. Uh, it's just, oh man, it's just hard to believe that they're allowed to do that. Regardless, they are, that's the fact. Um, and if you are in that situation and you know you need to get some help, 1-800-661-3030 is the number which will get you in touch with somebody from Sands and Associates so you can sit down, they can help you look at your situation and see if there isn't uh, something better that you can do to get you out of that particular situation. Um, we talked about the actual cost of the loan as being so uh, high and, uh, and, and risky, but there's more to a payday loan that's risky. Blair, you have some very clear thoughts about that. Yeah, well, the thing that tends to make payday loans so risky is that it usually doesn't end up at one. It's usually a case that creates a cycle where sometimes people are just frantically moving money around six, 10, even 15 different payday lenders. And, you know, just exploring through an example, you can see how that how that could build up. So if you were to borrow $300 from a payday lender and paying that $15 per $100 borrowed, in 14 days, you have to pay back $345. Again, that's that interest rate of $391% or approaching 400% here. If your usual paycheck is $1,000 after taxes and deductions, and you know, you're stretched to the budget, you need that $1,000 just to meet your current expenses. Well, now you've only got $655 left after you repay your loan. So what do you do? Well, you probably have to borrow again because those expenses need to be paid. And when you compare payday loan costs against other typical uh, means of borrowing, you know, it, it's just crazy the amount of difference. So again, that payday loan we talked about, $45 of interest charges on the $300 for two weeks. If it was a line of credit, assuming a small $5 admin fee, $8 annual interest rate, that'd be less than $6, $5.92 to be exact. If you put it on your overdraft, it'd be about $7.42, again, compared to 45, just a fraction of that. And even if you used a credit card, which again, we're all about, let's not put things on credit cards if we can avoid it, you'd still be paying less than $8 in interest compared to $45. So the challenge with a payday loan is just the interest costs create a gap in the budget. And oftentimes the only way to, to fill that gap is to incur another payday loan and then a third, and, and it can just stress people out to, to the max. And there are limits to how how many payday loans an individual lender can give you. But again, people just shop around and there are no shortage of individual payday lenders uh, who seem to have no problem advancing one payday loan after another to people. 
Now, this show is so dedicated towards giving folks a hand and ideas and information to assist them in a, in a debt situation. Um, I, I, and we just have about a minute or so left for this segment, but there are alternatives to payday loans. And can you give, just give us a, a real uh, lovely sketch of those, what those options are for folks if they're just thinking, there's no way out of this for me. What else could I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of these will make sense in certain situations, some just won't apply. But it's always important to think of, well, what's the reason for the loan? What is it that I'm trying to, to fill that payment gap on? Um, the best way to inoculate yourself against needing to use a payday loan is to have an emergency savings fund. So whether that's feasible or not, even starting to put away, you know, $50 a month in the space of a couple of years, that is going to be something that you can dig into if you need to, to meet an emergency expense. Um, in some cases, when you look at what the payday loan is for, if it's for rent, and you you've never been late on your rent before, it's probably worth having a chat with your landlord and saying, hey, can we pay the rent a few days later? If it's an isolated incident, they'd probably be just fine with it. Uh, You can even consider asking your employer for a pay advance or even a payout of your vacation pay. So sometimes having what might not be the most pleasant conversation, but a real conversation with the person that you're concerned about letting down, again, whether it's a landlord or getting an advance on your pay, that can be a great alternative to just borrowing from a payday lender. Paying off credit card debt where to start and what you can do. And the reason why, Blair, I think it's just so important, and, and I'm telling you something you already know, uh, credit card debt is like one of the most common, if not the most common reason that people get into uh, a debt situation that becomes overwhelming is, is due to those darn credit cards, right? Well, absolutely. I can't think of anybody I've helped to file a bankruptcy or proposal in in the last year or so that has not had at least one credit card. And in the space of my career, it's probably just a very small, small number of people, maybe just somebody with huge ICBC debt and nothing else. Almost everybody ends up having a credit card debt. And in some cases, that's all people have. It's just a credit card that led to another. They were maxed out. They got another credit card. And then suddenly they're dealing with debt that's just snowballing on its own because of the high cost and the high interest charges. And I don't want to be mean here, but it seems that the credit card uh, process is, is we're almost set up every time we get one. I mean, they make it often so easy to get a second one or a third one or the first one for that matter, that of course it's something that everybody uh, could potentially struggle with. Well, yeah. And, you know, we could probably spend uh, the entire segment just talking about the concerns I have with how credit card companies do business. But, you know, talk yeah. about who, who are the biggest sponsors on your first week of school and university. It's the credit card companies. And, you know, these by definition are students with no assets, no job, no income. But we want to give them high interest financing as quick as we can. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely some cynicism uh, from me in saying that, yeah, it can be a little bit too easy um, to get hooked on easy credit. And then when you think about whether it's an airline or even a lot of restaurants, oh, we don't do cash anymore. So, you know, you really do have to have a payment card, whether that's, you know, a visa debit or something. But it's quite often easiest just to have that unsecured credit card that just becomes this uh fact of life that, hey, you tap the card instead of reaching into your wallet for the money that you used to feel a bit of pain parting with some of those bills rather than just that tap that feels the same, whether it's $5 or $50. Absolutely. And I just want to throw in here, having gone through the pandemic, grocery shopping to now actually opening my wallet or purse and giving them cash for it. It's like such a foreign thing. And they're kind of looking at me and I'm thinking, is it okay if I give you money? And they're going, (laughs) of course it is. Uh, Just let me, you know, count it out for you. It's like crazy. 
Yeah, we're losing that skill. Yeah, <laughs> we are. I think everybody is not just the consumer, but the people on the other end of it. Anyways, okay, so let's talk about credit card debt. And uh, what's the first thing that you recommend for folks? Well, I think the first thing is just to really make sure you have an understanding of how credit cards work and how quickly they can get out of control. So when you use your credit card for a purchase and you don't pay the balance off in full, the purchases just become more expensive with the added interest charges and the balance continues to roll over and over, accrue more interest, interest upon interest, so to speak. So you can end up, if you have a very high balance on your credit card, your monthly interest charges can even push you over your credit limit. So not from purchases just from again interest stacked on interest and you should understand too if you start to miss some payments or make a payment late uh, some credit cards have clauses where suddenly their interest rate will go even higher so not only are they going to ding your credit report for missing some payments but now it's going to get harder each month um, to get that that credit card actually paid down. Um, a couple of examples of really how minimum payments are not designed to get you out of debt at all. They're designed to maximize the amount of money credit card companies will eventually get from you is if you had just a thousand dollar balance on your credit card at 18%, which is a very typical credit card interest rate. And a lot of them are higher these days. That could be 10 years to pay off with just minimum monthly payments. So, you know, who would think that 10 years is a reasonable timeline to pay off just a thousand dollars? debt. I don't think anybody, but if you're sitting there just not paying attention every month and thinking that your minimum payments are making progress, they're definitely not. If that $1,000 was from one of the big department stores where their credit cards are 29.9 interest in many cases, that's suddenly 25 years to pay off. So you just really have to understand if there's one thing, please understand that minimum payments, if you're stuck in that cycle, you're going nowhere fast. And that's a big warning sign that you actually need some help. Yeah, and that's when you that's when you get a hold of somebody at Sands and Associates and say, "This is my situation. What can I do about that?" And if you want to do that, it's so easy. Here's the phone number: it's a one eight hundred number six six one thirty thirty, or go to the website sands trusteecom It's filled with great questions and very well understandable answers uh, it, to really define your situation a little bit better. If you're still unsure, that's a great way to go and then give them a call. So what are some of the strategies that folks are using these days to get their credit cards paid off? Yeah, a couple of things you can consider, you know, one, if the situation is not very severe yet and hopefully doesn't get that way, you can negotiate or try to switch uh, even with a different lender to a lower interest rate. So even something like a two to 3% drop in your interest charges, that can have a big difference in helping you pay off your credit card debt easier. If your balances are reasonably low and you haven't been missing any payments, I would consider contacting your credit card issuer and just asking them, hey, can you guys do anything better on this interest rate? Do you have any other products I should be considering? And the customers that have made their payments on time, been longtime customers, they can see there's good value in that relationship. They're often able to negotiate a lower rate. You want to be prepared before you make that call. So do some interest rate comparisons. You know, if you just do a quick Google search of, you know, low rate interest card credit cards in Canada, you'll find a bunch of really good resources. And you can say to your bank, well, okay, it's great that you're dropping it to 15% for me, but I can see this card. I can apply for tomorrow at 12. Really not like to leave you guys. What can you do? And suddenly you might find that there's some good options for, for you to consider with your existing bank. 
one other option to consider is if one of your cards has a lower balance than the others will be to look at doing a balance transfer. Uh, you want to be careful here that there's not going to be any fees associated with that because sometimes there can be a one-time fee and be as low as 1% or as high as a few multiples of that and that can make things a little more expensive than what you would think uh, and make sure it's not just a promotional rate that within a couple months it's going to be higher than the card you transferred it from. So definitely trying to negotiate or reduce the interest rate is one option. Uh, another option to consider is to really prioritize the highest interest cost debt that you have. And you've got to make all your minimum payments each month if you're not going to be filing with, with Sands & Associates for a proposal, which we'll talk about if you're going to try to pay things off yourself. But if you're able to carve out extra money in your budget and actually pay more than the minimum payments, what you'd want to do is really prioritize whichever card is costing you the most each month. So put a list together of all of your cards with their minimum payments, account numbers, balances, and then interest rates and decide if it's an extra 50 or $100 every month that you can pay beyond just the minimum payments, put 100% of that extra payment to the highest interest card until that one is paid off and then move on down the line to your, your next highest interest card, so on and so forth. And you mentioned talking about, you know, filing a consumer proposal to consolidate and, and get rid of that credit card credit card period as well as other debts is, 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 a, is a wonderful step to take if that's your situation. Well, absolutely, Elaine. And that's often the step that people need to take because quite often when I meet with someone, there's no ability to make even the minimum payments or any more than those. Um, and if they just say, well, we can't pay more than the minimums, I don't think anybody should be paying $1,000 off for 10 years plus. And it just goes up from there. So filing a consumer proposal, as anyone who listens to the show knows, is going to consolidate the debt, reduce the balance to what you can afford and bring the interest literally to zero. So every dollar that you pay in a consumer proposal goes directly directly to reduce that debt. And it's often a significantly lowered amount of the debt as well. So people can have life changing transformations in their financial situation in a matter of just a few short years by doing a consumer proposal. Okay, so let's say that now I want to start using my credit card again, I've gone through the process. How do you I, I don't know how a person in this day and age can do that easily. And I know we've just got a, a few seconds left. But what do you recommend? Well, a secured credit card is a great way to start. That's a card where you have a deposit and your limit only allows you to go up to that deposit limit. So that can be a way that makes sure you're never going to get into trouble. So a secured credit card, you can get them at no fee through a bunch of banks or online. That's a great option to, to consider. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.